Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Evansville, Indiana. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Robert Doerr II, who went by Robbie, was born the son of a firefighter and knew from the time he was a boy that he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. He graduated high school in 1985, and just six years later, at 24 years old, he graduated the Evansville Fire Academy and began the career he had always dreamed about. When it comes to Robbie, there are two things you need to know. He was kind to his bones, and his family was everything to him. He had a daughter named Lindsay, who was his entire world, and eventually, Lindsay gave birth to his granddaughters, whom he referred to as his angels. Whether it was daddy-daughter days that he'd post about on Facebook or spending time with his granddaughters, Robbie's heart was always full. I mentioned earlier that Robbie was kind down to his bones, but I don't know if that even begins to cover it. If anyone needed help with anything, he'd make the time to be there. If he saw someone in a restaurant that looked like they might be struggling, he'd pick up their tab. And then you get to his career as a firefighter. According to News 14, he had been offered a promotion several times over his 27-year career, and each time he turned them down. He wanted to be the one going into the fires and pulling them out. He was a hometown hero who actually received a Silver Merit Award after the Courier and Post reports that he saved more than 12 people from an apartment fire in January of 2003. When it comes to the firefighter community, each firefighter and their children and spouses become a part of your family. And in September of 2018, the Door family grew by one. On September 5th, 51-year-old Robbie and a woman named Elizabeth Fox, who went by Becky, had a small wedding on the beach. She wore a white dress with rainbow flowers in her hair and posed for pictures with her new husband, Robbie. I looked as hard as I could find for any information about their relationship, but as much as Robbie and Becky posted on social media, neither of them seemed to really post about each other. The two had been Facebook friends for more than six years, but it looks like at some point during those six years, she was married to someone else. Her profile picture in 2013 was of herself in what looks like a different wedding dress, being kissed on the cheek by who I can only assume is her son and another adult male who again I can only assume was her groom at the time. Nonetheless, at some point between then and September of 2018, she and Robbie got together and eventually got married. Their marriage would come to a tragic and horrifying end just 145 days later. February 26, 2019 began like any other day for Robbie. He worked a 12-hour shift at the firehouse doing what he loved most, and after 6 p.m., he headed back home to presumably spend a quiet evening alone with his wife, Becky, but that's not what happened. Just before 7 p.m., Robbie pulled up to his house and parked in his driveway like he always did, but within minutes, there was gunfire. Several shots were heard, and within five minutes of getting home, Becky was on the phone with 911. David Muir played a clip of the phone call, and you can hear a frantic and panicked Becky say, My husband just got shot, adding, All I saw was my husband's headlights pull into the driveway, and then I heard a bunch of popping. 
Even though the call was made within minutes of Robbie getting home, Becky told the operator that she didn't see anyone running or driving away from the scene. When police, fire, and EMS arrived on scene, they found Robbie, the hero they knew and loved, lying on the ground in front of his house. He had been shot three times, once in his shoulder neck area and twice in the back. As much as they would have given anything to save him, Robbie was pronounced dead at the scene. Sergeant Jason Cullum told WEHT to see an Evansville firefighter gunned down in front of his own home is something we weren't really prepared for. It was clear from minute one, second one, that this was a murder. So the investigation into who might have killed him and why started immediately. Something they noticed right off the bat was that even though a gun had clearly been fired at least three times, there were no shell casings on the ground. This posed a lot of questions like, did the shooter shoot him from a distance and leave the shell casings elsewhere? Was he shot with a revolver? Did the shooter stick around long enough to locate all of the shell casings and pick them up before leaving the scene? If that was the case, how did no one catch a glimpse of who might have done this? Neighbors didn't hear anything other than the shots, no screeching tires or cars speeding away. And Becky told police that she was home alone when the shooting happened and that she hadn't seen anything suspicious. The possibilities as to who did this and why seemed endless, so police went back to exactly where the shooting occurred in the driveway and looked for anything they might have missed, and they did notice something. It was small, but it was important. On the back left panel of Robbie's truck, they noticed a swipe mark. It looked like it was headed in the direction away from his house towards the east. Following that swipe mark like it was an arrow leading them to evidence, they headed east, and lo and behold, they found damage to some of the houses from the shots. Following the direction the evidence was leading, police pieced together what they believed happened. According to an affidavit, they believed that Robbie got out of his truck, made his way to the back of it, and in doing so, was shot twice in the back. They believe he made an attempt to get behind his truck, you know, to take cover, but was shot once again in his shoulder slash neck area. All of the bullets seem to have been fired from in front of his truck, and according to that affidavit, they'd most likely come from the side door of his own house. That door would have come right out into the driveway. Becky had told police that she was home alone when the shooting happened, so she had a lot of explaining to do. Was there someone else at the house? Had she somehow missed a stranger standing at their side door waiting to ambush her husband? Or was it possible that his own wife was somehow involved? Detectives became suspicious of Becky pretty quickly, and that suspicion only grew when, during a search of their home, they found a letter in a drawer in the master bedroom. It was written by Robbie, addressed to Becky, and while the full letter hasn't been released, an affidavit does contain quotes from it, including, Ever since he came back into your life, and I see his texts on your phone. All eyes pointed in Becky's direction were now glued after reading that Robbie, at the very least, may have been suspecting that his new wife was already having an affair. While detectives were looking deeper into Becky, the medical examiner revealed that while Robbie had been shot three times, he had been shot with two types of ammunition. He'd been shot with a 45 caliber bullet and buckshot. 
If you're anything like me, that would make you immediately think that he was shot with two different guns, but I spoke to a firearms instructor who told me that there's a revolver that can shoot both types of ammunition. It's called the Taurus Judge. You can load the barrel with both, pull the trigger, and interchangeably, the different types of ammunition will be shot in the order you loaded it in. Detectives looked through reports of any stolen weapons, seeing if there were any that might fit the bill, and there was. Sometime between July 2nd and September 19th of the previous year, 2018, a tourist judge had been reported stolen from River City Pawn Shop in Evansville. They hadn't been able to determine who stole it at that point, but they were more invested than ever to find out. While detectives tried to track down everything they could about the stolen tourist judge, other investigators were trying to figure out what involvement Becky might have had or not had in her husband's murder. They pulled data from her physical phone and compared it to the data from her carrier and noticed a discrepancy. Looking at her physical phone, you wouldn't have seen any incoming or outgoing calls prior to Robbie's murder. However, her carrier records told a different story. At 6.46 p.m., she'd gotten a phone call from someone that lasted five minutes. The call ended 15 minutes before Robbie was shot. She had never mentioned it to the police, and it was evident that she'd made an effort to clear it from her call log. With the phone number from the carrier records, they typed it into Becky's contacts, and it matched someone listed as Larry Ali. Detectives ran a report and found out that his full name was Larry Ali Richmond Sr., and he was a convicted murderer. Larry Ali Richmond Sr. had a pretty unfortunate childhood. According to his former defense attorney, his dad left when he was young and his mother wound up going to prison. With no parents around, he was put into the foster care system. At some point during his younger years, he had a son who was named after him, Larry Jr., and by the time he was only 17 years old, he was facing murder charges. On June 6th of 1996, a 70-year-old man named James Everett Montgomery was found dead of a gunshot wound to the head by the railroad tracks of one of his favorite scrapyards. Scrapyards were like treasure hunts for 70-year-old James, and if he wasn't at one of them, you could probably find him playing cards. It took two weeks for police to narrow in on a suspect in his murder, but eventually, two young men who were with Larry Sr. the day of the murder said that they went to the scrapyard with him to shoot a gun that he claimed to have found. The three of them ran into James near the tracks, talked to him for a minute, and then headed further down the tracks. When the teens fired the weapon, James naturally paid close attention to them, but according to the Courier and Press, it was then that Larry suggested they knock James off. I doubt any of them thought he was serious, but all three of them headed back to where James was when all of a sudden, Larry Sr. pointed the found gun at James's feet. The other two boys ran like hell, leaving Larry Sr. and James behind. Detectives brought Larry Sr. in for questioning, and according to the outlet, Larry told them that he only meant to rob James, but ended up killing him. 
In his confession, he said that he pointed the gun at James, demanding money, but when James refused to give him his wallet and instead reached toward his belt, Larry says that he got scared and fired the gun once, killing him. Larry was charged with murder, and because he was just six months shy of turning 18, he was waived from juvenile court into adult court. Because of that, if the prosecution could prove that James was killed during a robbery, which Larry seems to have admitted to, he could be facing the death penalty. Obviously, a 17-year-old facing the death penalty was major news, but the case never went to trial. Larry took a deal, and in exchange for pleading guilty to murder, the robbery charge was dropped. On March 11, 1997, Larry was sentenced to 45 years in prison, but he'd be up for parole in half the time, and once released, would have a total of five years probation. Larry was ultimately released on probation in March of 2018, less than a year before Robbie was murdered, and he was the last phone call that Robbie's wife got before he was killed. He also happened to be engaged to and living with Becky's literal sister. Feeling like they were on the right track, investigators dove deeper into the life of Larry Sr. and according to an affidavit, learned that his son, Larry Jr., who we're just going to refer to as Jr., worked at River City Pawn Shop, the pawn shop that the tourist judge had been reported stolen from. On March 4th, Robbie was laid to rest and endless amounts of friends and family members and members of the entire community came out to pay their respects to the man that everyone loved. During his eulogy, WHET reports that Fire Chief Mike Dickinson said, Robbie wore his badge with pride and dignity. His legacy of integrity is what the foundation of this department is built upon. Before he ended, he gave Robbie a message saying, Take a break, young man. You deserve it. Rest easy. We'll take it from here. Adding, Robbie has completed tasks. His duties are done. He's given his best. For our brother and friend, his last alarm, he is going home. His daughter's heart broke as she posted publicly about the fact that she lost her best friend, her daughter lost her poppy, and that her dad would never get to walk her down the aisle like he'd always dreamed of doing. She added, we will find who did this to you and let's just say karma's a bitch. And karma was certainly spinning her wheels. On the same day as the funeral, three people were brought into the police station for questioning. Larry Sr., his fiancée and Becky's sister Amanda, and of course, Becky. According to an affidavit, Larry Sr. confirmed that it was his phone number that called Becky right before Robbie was killed, something the police were already well aware of, but before any real questioning could go down, he asked for an attorney. While his questioning was put on hold, his fiancée, Becky's sister, agreed to speak to detectives. She initially stated that Larry Sr. was with her the entire day, the day of Robbie's murder, but later corrected herself to say that she'd actually been out looking for him that night. She allowed investigators to look through her phone and saw that she had messaged Larry Sr. that night. I couldn't find anywhere that listed the content of that message, but from everything I could find, I found no indication that she would have known anything about what was happening that night or where Larry Sr. was. When it came time for Becky's interview, she too agreed to speak to detectives. According to an affidavit, investigators went back over the entire night of Robbie's murder, and once they got to the end of it, asked her if she'd left anything out or if there was anything she might have forgotten to tell them. 
This was her opportunity to tell them that she'd forgotten to tell them about that deleted phone call with Larry Sr., but she did not. They helped her along, asking her if there were any incoming or outgoing phone calls she had once again forgotten to tell them about, but even then, she told them that there weren't any outside of the one she'd already told them about. At that point, investigators decided to refresh her memory and showed her the deleted call that had come in just minutes before her husband's death. Becky said that she didn't remember talking to anyone before Robbie was killed, which would actually mean that she had forgotten two things, the call itself and then the act of deleting it. I feel like I have to put in the old sometimes we forget things in the midst of trauma note, but Becky went a step further and said that she didn't even recognize the phone number that had called her. Like walking a kindergartner through a color wheel, police asked her to go through her contact list and explain who each and every person was. When she got to Larry Ali, Becky stated that he was her sister's fiancé. And there we have it. When asked what she thought about Larry Sr., Becky said that she didn't know him well enough to have an opinion, though in a later interview, she changed her story. She went ahead and stated the obvious that the deleted call was with Larry Sr., and then finally admitted to withholding that information from detectives and deleting it from her call log. When asked what the deleted call was about, this girl seriously said that she and Larry Sr. were talking about adding another motion light to the backyard, a conversation that really doesn't feel like it requires deletion and being withheld in the midst of a homicide investigation. It also sounds unfactual. She said she'd withheld the information about the call even when presented with evidence of its existence because she knew Larry had been in trouble before. But not for backyard motion lights, Becky. She also threw in there that she didn't want detectives thinking she was having an affair with him. No one had said anything about an affair, but that spontaneous utterance certainly feels like it might fill in some of the holes in that letter Robbie had written her. Before the interview was over, Becky mentioned that she was walking her dog before Robbie came home from work that night and felt like Larry Sr. was at the house. Identifying structural occupants through her feelings seems to be a previously undiscovered talent of hers. Her spidey senses were so strong that she says she actually reached out to him later to see if he was there, and he told her that he'd come by earlier and that her garage door was open. The garage door comment is as random as it gets. It wasn't a garage that was attached to the house. It's actually behind the house, like in the backyard at the end of their driveway. The next person police interviewed was Junior, Larry's son. He gave consent for investigators to search through his phone, and lo and behold, they found a photo of a silver Taurus Judge revolver. They then went through his text messages, and according to an affidavit, one particular conversation stood out, one between Junior and Larry Sr. Junior texted his dad with, I'll trade you, to which Larry Sr. responded, what do you want to trade? Junior wrote back with, peacekeeper, and Larry Sr. said, okay. The Taurus judge is often referred to as the peacekeeper. 
Knowing Junior had been texting Larry Sr. about the Taurus judge, he had a lot of explaining to do and fully admitted to police that he had stolen it from the pawn shop sometime after September of 2018. September would have been just six months after Larry Sr. was released, and Jr. told police that just days after stealing it, he gave it to his father. Detectives asked Jr. why he wanted to trade the Taurus judge that his dad already had in his possession, and it gets a little confusing, but it all comes down to wanting a clean 45, meaning one that didn't have law enforcement looking for it. Before the interview was over, Jr. told police that his dad told him he'd bury the guns if things were to go down. But what was that even supposed to mean? He'd just gotten out of jail for murder and wasn't even supposed to have guns in the first place, so how much further was this supposed to go down? After the conversation with Larry Jr. confirming that he'd given the tourist judge to his father, detectives got a warrant to search Becky's sister's home where Larry Sr. had been living. In the backyard, WHET reports that they found a buried tote with two boxes of ammunition and three guns in it. The tourist judge was not one of them. All of the three in there had the serial numbers filed off. If you're a convicted murderer who's burying guns and ammo in your backyard, you're probably up to some shady shit. That comment about burying the guns if anything went down was apparently extremely literal. And as far as I can find, that tourist judge has never been located. After the finding of the buried box of weaponry, police were able to get some security footage from one of Becky's sister's neighbors, and the video showed none other than Larry Sr. walking to the backyard, tote in hand, to an area where the tote had been found. It seems pretty obvious that he was the one who'd buried them, but that video evidence was important. With it, they were able to charge convicted murderer Larry Sr. with federal gun charges. Those charges alone landed him five years in prison. The day after the backyard box of guns discovery, Becky was finally charged with obstruction of justice and lying to police. It was at least something, but according to ABC, she bonded out for a whopping $3,000. That same day, though, Becky's son came into the picture. He told the police that when his mom was picked up for questioning the day of Robbie's funeral, he went through some of the sympathy cards that they had received. While doing that, he noticed a small piece of paper that had fallen out of a card from Larry Sr. and Becky's sister. The note, which was separate from the card, read, We need to talk. A phone number was listed and it was signed Larry. Detectives asked Becky's sister about the card and said that when she signed it, she didn't see any piece of paper. She was, however, able to confirm that the note was written in Larry Sr.'s handwriting. At some point after all of that, Larry Jr. was brought back in for another interview, and that interview is where several of the pieces started coming together. Jr. told police that Larry Sr. was having an affair with Becky, and the world said, duh. He said that prior to Robbie's murder, his dad had driven him to the alley behind the door house. There is, in fact, an alley that divides two rows of houses which backs up to the backyards between them, including Robbie's. Junior says that when they got there, Becky came out, got into the car, kissed Larry Sr., and then went back inside. 
Jr. also gave detectives a letter written by his father. It was written to Larry Sr.'s mother, and in it, he told his mom that she needed to pass along a strong message to someone he referred to as Bumpy. Bumpy was apparently a nickname for Larry Jr. The letter went on to say, if the gun he stole ever pops up, they will be trying to charge him with murder or accessory to murder. He actually put that in writing. I've seen it mentioned that Junior handed over two letters and that the other one was written to Junior himself, but court records don't detail what that one said. With the pieces already falling into place, another person came forward, an inmate who was in jail with Larry Sr. at the time. He reached out to detectives to say that he had information regarding the homicide of Robbie Doerr. According to an affidavit, the inmate said that Larry Sr. had confided in him and talked about Robbie's murder, that Larry Sr. told him he was having an affair with Becky, his fiancé's sister, and that Robbie knew about it. The inmate actually took notes of what Larry Sr. told him, and he was able to hand them over to detectives. Now more than ever, it felt like police were so close to being able to turn the wheels of justice in Robbie's case, but in October of 2019, it felt like the investigation took a hit. Becky's obstruction and lying to police charges were dropped, but they were only dropped because they didn't want a trial for those charges to interfere with their murder investigation. They were also dropped without prejudice, which meant that they could refile them against her at any time. Four long months passed without any updates in the case until February of 2020, when police, for the first time, publicly named Larry Sr. as a person of interest in Robbie's murder. Robbie's daughter, Lindsay, told WDRB that she hoped the announcement would lead to more tips. She said, someone knows something. I have a feeling someone knows something and they're just not saying it. Unfortunately, even though they'd officially named Larry Sr., no major leads came in. Family and friends were rightfully upset that an arrest hadn't been made yet. They felt like they knew who did it, obviously, and posted that it wasn't fair that they were walking around free and content to enjoy their lives. More than a year passed with no new information until June of 2021 when detectives sent Larry Sr.'s phone out to the Cyber Crimes Task Force for a full extraction, which essentially means that if he so much as lifted his phone to wake, powered it on, or powered it off, they would know about it. I couldn't tell you why that took so long, but the extraction told them a lot. At 6.31 p.m. on the day of Robbie's murder, GPS data put Larry within 67 meters, or 219 feet, of the door home. It showed him there less than 35 minutes before Robbie was killed. Around that same time, Larry opened up a cop radio app on his phone, which I can only assume is one of the ones you use for police scanners. I used to use those apps when my husband was on duty and I was bored, but something tells me that Larry wasn't listening because his husband was on shift and he was bored. After opening the cop radio app, Larry Sr. called Becky at 6.46 p.m. and had a 5-minute and 30-second conversation that was later deleted. Larry also deleted that call from his own call log. 
At 6.52 p.m., one minute after hanging up with Becky, Larry Sr.'s phone was powered off. At 7.05 p.m., shots were fired and Robbie Doerr was killed. Within six minutes of the shooting, Larry Sr. was seen on surveillance footage at a Circle K gas station just a third of a mile from the Doerr house. Three minutes after that, his phone powered back on and he checked the cop radio app. While all of that is circumstantial, let's put it all together. Becky felt like Larry Sr. was at her house that day while she was walking her dog. But 35 minutes prior to Becky's husband's murder, Larry Sr. was within 219 feet of their house. 19 minutes before Robbie was killed, Larry Sr. called Becky and talked to her for five minutes. Larry Sr. turned his phone off within one minute of hanging up. Robbie was shot and killed 13 minutes after Larry Sr.'s phone was powered off. He was seen at a Circle K just up the road six minutes later, and mapping it out, it would take about six minutes to walk there. Three minutes after getting there, he turned his phone back on and opened up the cop radio app, which was just nine minutes after the husband of the woman he's accused of having an affair with was shot and killed in front of his own house. An entire year later, in July of 2022, this year, a grand jury was finally held in regards to Robbie's murder. While no one can tell you exactly what happens during a grand jury hearing, we can deduce that Becky made some false statements under oath because on July 12th, she was charged with perjury. Detectives then interviewed Larry Sr. in prison since he's still serving time for those federal gun charges. And according to an affidavit, he denied killing Robbie and denied having an affair with Becky. On August 18th of this year, Larry Sr. and Robbie's wife Becky were both charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. The arrest affidavit doesn't explicitly say what detectives think happened, which is a question since there are two people being charged and only one of them could have pulled the trigger. But People Magazine reported that detectives confirmed to them that they believe Becky hired Larry Sr. to kill Robbie. Local 12 News reported that police believe Larry committed the murder, which seems to be saying essentially the same thing. While both Larry Sr. and Becky are both considered innocent until proven guilty, Robbie's friends and family held a celebration of life and justice two days after the arrests. They remembered him for the hero he was, the person who would drop everything to be there for anyone who needed him, and celebrated the beginning of their road to justice. As of this recording, the latest update in Robbie's case came on September 30th when WEVV reported that trial dates have been set for Becky. Her trial for perjury is scheduled for April of 2023, and her trial for murder and conspiracy to commit murder is scheduled for just one month later in May of 2023. According to WFIE, Larry Sr. will not go to trial until he's finished serving his sentence for the federal gun charges. The Bureau of Prisons lists his release date as April 21st of 2023, so right around the same time Becky will be taking her seat at the defense table. 
For all photos pertaining to this case and updates as they come, check out Robbie's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media. All cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 